This is Matt Lautner coming to you live on a Tuesday night, uh, January 31st. We are joined by Dr. Don Cooper of Southeast Kansas. Don has a really fun and entertaining story to tell about some of the first cloning that was ever done in the show calf industry. The bull was full flush, and then he had several, I believe five, clones to full flush. Dean Kephart's bull back in the late 90s and early 2000s. So, Don, uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us about your business there at SEK, and we'll dive right in here. Okay, well, thanks, Matt. Basically, I'm a veterinarian with a company called SEK Genetics, and we do a lot of embryo transfer work now even with small ruminants like, you know, sheep and goats, but primarily cattle. We do quite a bit of semen distribution. We do a lot of lab work for producers that send blood and tissue in for us to check for diseases and management uh, decision uh, information like, is this cow pregnant or is this cow open? Does this cow got this disease? Does this cow have that parasite like Neospora or a disease like persistently infected BVD. We do a lot of on-farm work around here locally. We make a lot of embryos, both IVF and conventional embryos, put them in a lot of recips for people. And basically, advanced reproductive technology is kind of where we're at. Traditionally, we've done an awful lot of semen distribution. We still do. Basically, it's you know just a fairly good-sized embryo transfer company, and we think do we get along pretty good. You bet you. So uh, just a brief backstory is something that I, I truly have interest in. Can you just tell the audience how you uh, came to own SEK Genetics there in the 90s? There was uh, three or four separate distributors in different states, and and could you just tell that backstory for the audience? Well, SEK Genetics was a part of, was one of four companies in a company called Genetic Horizons. In the 1990s, I had a chance to buy this company. I owned a feed company with my brother, and then he wanted to buy me out and run the feed company, and I was kind of interested in getting more back into the veterinary side of it because I'm a veterinarian. And so he bought my, my part of the feed manufacturing company, and then I turned around and bought a guy out, a local guy out called Jerry Kramer, who owned the semen distribution company that was part of the Genetic Horizons group. And there were four guys in the Genetic Horizons group, and we pooled our bulls together and sold semen for each other and supplied bulls to each other. And then over the course of several years, a couple of partners decided to sell out to a Canadian company, and they did. And that kind of fractured the Genetic Horizons company, but SEK Genetics survived, started doing you know, doing our own thing, you know, put out a catalog and, and did all that sort of thing. The cloning side of it, cloning activity came about because I was interested in those kind of technologies, so I never really thought somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning would ever be a real thing because I didn't think that you could take an, a differentiated adult tissue and then and then turn it into an embryo. There were some people in uh, Scotland that were actually working on that, and they produced Dolly the sheep. And when they first did that, and I heard about it on the news, it made quite a big quite a big uh, impact in the papers, and there was a lot of people talking about it. I thought it was. I didn't think that was true. I didn't think they could do it. And then, of course, it turned out to be true. So I was interested in it, and I did quite a bit of reading about it. And one day at Kansas State University, they had one of the original researchers for Dolly the Sheep make a presentation in Manhattan, and I went to it. During the course of that presentation, the guy said that they were going to start a company to do that kind of cloning and that they intended to be able to make you know, somatic cell nuclear transfer clones of cattle and sheep and horses. After the meeting, I went up and talked to him and said, what would it take to do that? And that's how that all happened, Matt. That is pretty amazing. I'm having Kevin up in the control room mute me while you're talking so I don't interrupt. I'm old enough to remember the, the 
term Dolly and that first clone that they did. Um, mm-hmm. How many years after Dolly would you guess it was before like Heatwave was cloned? It was very shortly after Dolly the Sheep but was created. And then it was just, I don't know, it wasn't very long at all, just a year or so probably. I, to be honest with you, I can't remember exactly, but it was fairly recently, just a matter of a very few years, that they made the presentation in Manhattan. After that presentation, I went up to the guy and said, if you guys can do this, I'm interested in it. And in fact, there were several bulls, and Full Flush was certainly one of them. Very, very popular at the time. A Full Flush calf won an awful lot of shows. I mean, he was a dominant bull, very much like Heatwave was later. He was a very dominant bull in the show industry at the time. But the bull, unfortunately, would get stale and stud real fast. And so... Dean Kephart sold a lot of semen on that bull, and I wanted to sell semen on it and did with Dean. It was a bull you sometimes had trouble getting semen on because he'd get in the stud, collect pretty well for a week or two, and then he'd get stale and he wouldn't mount the you know, the teaser animal. But it was pretty obvious to me that if we were going to clone something, we ought to be cloning something that would have immediate demand and immediate appeal to the industry. So I asked the guy, what would it take to create a clone? of a bull. At that meeting, the guy said he wasn't sure, but they'd get back to me. So a couple of days later, the guy said 25000 bucks, which was a lot of money back then, you know, back in the two, early 2000s, late 1990s. Yeah. So I got to thinking about it and thought, you know, if we can do this for 25000 bucks, we might be able to make our money back. So I talked to Dean Kephart and Dean was kind of like, I have no idea what you're talking about. On the other hand, if it's your, your money, go for the gusto. So, uh, so I went to Texas where the bull was at, and pulled an ear notch and sent it to a cloning facility called Siagra up in, uh, let's see, Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, I think, if my memory serves. They made cloned embryos and sent them to some guys up by Manhattan and put them in, and they got some pregnancies. And, of course, I was pretty hopeful and pretty amazed. And then they ended up with six calves. There was actually six of those, Matt, not five. And what happened was one of those calves hung itself at the vet school because they put dog because they put dog collars on those calves to keep track of who was who because they all looked about the same. Of course, they looked exactly the same because they were identical twins to each other is what they amounted to. And one of them managed to hang himself. Then I told them, take those dog collars off and put ear tags in them. And, and And that was the dream team, those five. There were two single births, and then there were two sets of twins, and that was the sixth. And one of the sets of twins hung himself on a post with a dog collar. And interestingly enough, those calves were the first commercially supported cloning attempt that I'm aware of in the United States. And we got tremendous attention from the public because somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning was so new. And I think it was kind of controversial because people didn't understand it. The FDA actually uh, was part of the problem. When we when I first thought about doing this and spending 25 grand on it, I uh, talked to the FDA to see if they would have an issue with those animals being in the food chain. And at the time that I started the project, they said, no, they didn't have an issue at all. But by the time the calves arrived, then they had an issue. And they said mm-hmm. they couldn't be in the food chain, nor could offspring of those animals be in the food chain. I remember, uh, I believe ABS would never take on a clone like with uh, Wave on Wave, Heat Wave 1, and Full Flush clones. I don't think they do to this day because they won't let, Canada doesn't want clone meat in their food chain. Yeah, I think part of that was, and, I, and I'm, my memory could fail me here, but I think part of that, Matt, was that part of ABS was owned by an English guy, if I remember right, and I could be wrong on this. And the English were dead set against that, and so their policy was that they wouldn't allow it. See, by the time the bulls got big enough to be 
collected for semen, which of course took about a year, by then the FDA had changed their minds and said even though the clones themselves couldn't be in the food chain, but offspring of the clones could be in the food chain. And then, of course, later they backed off that and said, yeah, they're fine. You know, they're just animals. Well, I guess one thing that I would like to make light of, um, whenever Phil Lautner would have brought Wave on Wave or Heat Wave 1, as he was called, to Denver, yeah. or uh -huh. uh, later, a year or two later, he cloned a lifeline steer that my brother Chance showed uh, that Sturwalt had raised, and that bull was called Harry Bear, cloned to a lifeline steer, one of the first steers ever be cloned to make a bull with. Those bulls were displayed, one clone standing there in Denver, sun shining down on them. Whenever you came to Denver with those full flush clones, and I don't know which was first, I have no, I honestly can't remember, probably the full flush clones. You had were, five of them standing right next to each other. It was just yeah. interesting to see the subtle differences in feed consumption and how that yeah. that kind of changed their maturity, or one might have grown just a tick faster because of a heavier milking mother or whatever. It was yeah. truly entertaining to see those things standing right yeah, next to each other. Yeah, what was really, yeah, and... What was really interesting about that, Matt, was that three of those calves were half a set of twins, and they were dramatically smaller than the single births mm -hmm. when I got them as baby calves. And see, when I first got those calves from Kansas State University, we we had those calves. We, we took those, those recips to the vet school, and they were born at the vet school. And when I picked those calves up, there was all kinds of weirdness about that stuff. Like, for instance, Kansas State University had a photographer that I contracted to take pictures of those calves because I thought it would be interesting to document that. Well, they took a bunch of pictures of those calves, and then I went in to get the pictures and pay the guy, and he said that the school had made him destroy the pictures because they were afraid of the controversy. And <laughs> it just made me furious. But I, never did, I never did get those pictures because they did destroy them. Anyway, that was kind of weird. And then the other thing that was weird was that even though the calves were from different cows and I raised them all on a bottle, I raised them in a bottle in a barn here at the house or here at the clinic, those calves, even though they were dramatically different in size, they had incredibly similar personalities. Usually you get a half a dozen bucket calves together, four or five of them, you know, one or two will be pretty aggressive and two or three of them will kind of hang back and get picked on. All those calves were extremely aggressive with each other. They were entertaining in that respect. The other thing that was interesting about it was there was so much contro not controversy, but so much interest in it, even in the you know even in the non-ag world, that we had people from Los Angeles. I've got a, a Los Angeles Times newspaper someplace around here that's got a picture of those calves on the front cover. A reporter came all the way out here. When you go to Denver and you see some of these city people that want to pet your fluffy cow or whatever, yeah. I mean, yeah. I just, I'm just trying to put, give the audience some some framing here. People picking up their L.A. Times uh, newspaper early, in the early 2000s, and they just yeah. focus on the word clone on the headline yeah. of that newspaper. It probably does freak them out just a little bit. So, I mean, what was your thoughts with all this? I mean – it sounds cool now, but at the time, were you a little bit nervous about all the ex-publicity, or what do you think? I wasn't really nervous about it, but I was kind of surprised that people found it so controversial. When we took those clones to Denver, there was huge interest in them in the yards, because we had them in a display down in the yards, and there was huge interest. And a, and a Denver uh, television station contacted us and wanted to know if they could come down there and take pictures. And I said, well, sure, it's a public, you know, I mean, it's a Denver, it's a stock show, everybody shows up. So they came down and actually took video of those clones on display that middle weekend there were cowboys about and and you know cattle people and tourists and everybody about five people deep all around that that set of calves watching them i'll never forget during the course of the interview 
they didn't interview me. They were interviewing Dean Kephart and some of those guys. I can't remember if Dean was there or not, but there was a cowboy there and they were asking him, what did he think of those clones? And he said, well, he thought they were a pretty good looking set of bulls. And the guy said, well, why is there so much interest here? And he said, well, because it's full flush and, and he's a big deal, you know, plus he's a clone and that's a big deal. That's kind of new and all that stuff. And the guy said, well, what would it take to get more interest than what these bulls are getting, you know, for interest? And the guy said he figured that Miss, this cowboy told him that he figured Miss America could be stark naked in one of these pens, and she wouldn't get a whole lot more interest than those bulls. I'll never forget that. And they put it on TV. As, <laughs> I'll never forget that because I heard the guy say it. It really was something. And then, of course, when those clones that you guys produced, you know, there was a lot of interest in that, too. A lot of it. Different from you, Don. Whenever the newspapers called Phil Lautner, he wouldn't answer the phone. He was a little bit shy compared to you. So that cloning technology, you know, there was some very useful and imaginative applications. I mean, this idea that you take a, a championship steer, you know, that wins a major show because of his obvious, you know, obvious advantages and turn right around and recreate that animal as a bull to sell semen on, you know, I mean, I figured that would happen and it certainly did. I mean, people picked right up on it right away. But that kind of technology at the time was kind of, I won't say controversial, but I just think it took people a while to get educated on it. We actually had television crews come here from Germany, Sweden, and I think Norway in the year after those calves were out at Denver. Highlighting a few of the biggest name ID clones of steers through the years, I know that the bull solid gold clones were yep. were uh, harvested from the champion steer in Houston in the late 2000s from Brandon yep. Horn. Both Brandon Horn and Phil Lautner both had clones to the steer, and that those clones were called yeah. solid gold. And then uh, in 2008, uh, Dave Faber won the Iowa State Fair with a heat wave steer yep. out of a Jack Frost cow. They cloned that steer that same summer and ended up coming back. And the clone, the cloned steer won the same Iowa State Fair two years later in 2010. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that, but you're right. Yeah, I remember that. And then most recently, Dan Snedden from Ogden, Iowa, raised a Monopoly Harry Bear steer. Shockies won Denver with in 2015. That steer was cloned, and last year won Louisville and Reserve at Fort Worth. The bull called Red Rocky was a steer cloned from 2015. So anyway, so now it's probably a little more mainstream. It's interesting to me that 20-some, 25 years later, or whatever it is, 2023, the clone prices haven't really gone down a whole lot. Like for one clone, it's 20000 and I think you get, if you order four and you get extras, you can get a discount on them, but basically it's, it's nearly the same identical price as it was 20-some years ago. I would tell you that that's primarily economics. It has, it's not the science. I mean, I produced clones. People wouldn't believe it if I told you how cheap I could produce clones. And the reason was I was, I was buying embryos from a company called Siagra. See, Transova did the biggest end of the cloning for a long time, but Siagra was very active also, and those were all the clones I made came out of Siagra. See, I could buy those embryos for actually less than embryos sell right now, and they would send those to me fresh overnight, and I'd put them in cows here, and I probably raised, I don't know, probably 20 clones over the, maybe more than that. Some of those clones I didn't have $2,000 in. I put four cloned embryos in for to reproduce a cow that uh, C.A. Collins owned, Christy Collins' dad. We got three live calves out of that. 
out of those four embryos. So, I mean, it really wasn't as difficult. Some of those cell lines were extremely useful for making clones, and some cell lines struggled terribly or never made a clone. Not like some cows are good embryo producers and some aren't. Uh, I have had the monopoly himself was fairly easy to recreate for whatever reason, whereas some other cell Mm -hmm. lines weren't uh, as fertile. I know. You really struggled with them. With some of them, you really, really struggled. And with some of them, you could make a lot of pregnancies, but the pregnancies would fall out you know, when you got 180 or 190 days into gestation or maybe a little farther, then they'd lose those pregnancies. And then some Mm -hmm. of them, you know, you'd, you'd put in half a dozen embryos and get two or three pregnancies, and they'd go straight to term. I cloned uh, Yellow Jacket for uh, Junior Stelzer. See, we there were several of those. Actually, your dad saw those calves when he was when they were real young at my place, and those were and those were really attractive young animals, really attractive. Phil Lautner is a landowner in Southeast Kansas, isn't he? He was, yeah. One thing that I, I think the audience would like to hear your opinion on there's there's some difference of opinion within the industry. A bull that's cloned, do you think the original breeds better or the same as a clone, whether that be a bull or a cow? I I know that a lot of people think that there's a difference between them. I raised a lot of calves out of the full flush clones. I actually got better calves out of the clones than I did the original bull, but... I attribute that to the fact that I knew better how to use them when I was using cloned semen than I did when I was using the original bull because I didn't have much experience with them. You know, I didn't know what kind of cows to use them on. For me, I don't think there's, to me, I don't I don't see any difference. But that's just me. And that's what the science would suggest too, I think. I think the scientists would tell you that there shouldn't be much different. Now, if you drill down on it far enough, Matt, the animals that are clones of the original animal of the original animal really don't vary except for in the mitochondrial DNA of the cells. And the reason for that is, now we're kind of getting into the weeds here, but the reason for that is you get your mitochondria from the female side. If you're if you're cloning a bull, you're actually taking the nucleus of a somatic cell and injecting it into the egg of some cow that provided you that egg, and that mitochondrial DNA is in that egg. And that mitochondria is kind of like the little machine that powers the cell, the little motor for the cell. And some scientists, and I've talked to some of them, and these guys get pretty complex pretty fast. I'm not sure I can follow their reasoning. But they say that they think that there are some animals that are inherently more efficient on a cellular level because the mitochondrial DNA may be a little more efficient from one animal to the next. I don't know if that's the case. But to answer your question, I don't see much, if any, difference between one cloned animal and the next cloned animal and the original animal. What do you think? been asked that question a lot uh, during Monopoly's run, and I guess it <laughs> yeah. didn't matter to me whether we were lining up a flush for a Margo five or six years ago, if we were using Monopoly 7 or Monopoly 10, or yep. if we had the original Monopoly, we would use that too, but we never really saw much difference. Um, I do think there was probably just a little bit of variation just from my mind's eye and what I saw in some of the heat wave clones. But uh, to me, the monopolies always seem to breed more true, I guess. That's interesting you bring that up because right now I'm I'm today, believe it or not, I've got a bunch of animals registered in Australia, and I've got a bunch of full sibs, and I sent tissue in on all of them for genomics. And, and I've got four full sib heifers of this mating, and three of them are junk, and one of them is pretty good if you look at the genomics. <laughs> and they're full sibs. You can't tell the difference out of looking them out in the pasture. But on genomics, you know, 
one of them is a, kind of a star, and the other three are just garbage. So I suppose yeah. you're right. You know, it's just kind of how it all happens. To, how it all happens to line up. Yeah, and he, everybody's got to go with their own life experience. So I mean, if yeah. you uh, sold a ten thousand dollar original Monopoly in two thousand and eleven, and two years later you sold a eleven thousand dollar Monopoly two, you might think Monopoly two is better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. It's, 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 you can convince yourself of stuff sometimes pretty easy. Just talking about the history of the game a little bit, Don, whenever y'all were moving a lot of semen for bull owners in the 90s, bringing that forward to the day, how do you think, if any, the, the semen selling business or the embryo, how, how they changed through the years, I guess? I know that that would be two totally separate questions, but... Well, I think that I think what you're seeing is I think social media has done a lot to the industry, especially to the semen distribution game, because probably 25 years ago, if you didn't have a catalog, didn't, people didn't know what you had, and now because of you know you can get online and I mean we we don't hand out near the catalogs that we used to hand out because people don't use them. They don't they look it up on their phone. They get it online, and and so what you're seeing is I think you've got the pie. The AI pie, so to speak, isn't a whole a whole lot bigger than it was in the past, but there are so many more players in it. The flip side of that is that uh, I think that you're that you've got a, a much more sophisticated consumer now, and the embryo industry, because it's a skill that's a little more difficult to come up with, you know, making embryos and placing embryos and harvesting embryos and all that sort of thing, that. You know, there, there may be there, for those people that are selling services, there may be more money in the in the service side on the embryo field than there is on the on the semen side. It's harder for people to really get elite genetics now compared to everybody else, unless you're doing embryo work, really. In terms of steers, or uh, if you get into the specific breeds within the the show heifer game, I think you're all breeding to the same five or ten bulls, depending on mm -hmm. which segment of the industry you're in. And it truly comes down to which cow you're mating them to. And with yep. IVF, I think the overall, my personal opinion would be the overall consumption of semen has gone down just a skosh over the last 10 or 15 years because you can make a litter of 15, 20 calves up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Out yeah. of an IVF deal, and you're getting precisely what you want. Whereas AI in these cows, you're getting a little less precise because. Not every cow is going to have that donor level quality. You know, and you're doing IVF. You can take a straw of semen, and and fertilize about 400 oocytes. Yep. I mean, we've, we're doing quite a bit of work now in the Wagyu world for some producers, and you know, and that semen is just ungodly expensive. I mean, $200 is cheap for that stuff, and sometimes it's up in the thousands. And so, you know, we'll have we'll have three or four or five guys bring cows in here and pick up eight or ten cows for embryos and send them to the lab, and they may burn one or two straws of semen on all those cows because they split it up amongst all of them. Going back to Kephart's full flush one more time, do you think that you captured the market in terms of financial return, or had the market changed from full flush into what I would call the heat seeker and heat wave era. I think it did to a degree, Matt. I think you're right. I mean, I think judges started picking up animals that weren't. I mean, full flush was kind of a racehorse-made animal, you know, a great big butt, a real strong top, but not very, you know, not very, he was pretty shallow, you know, body style-wise. And, and then, you know, the heat waves, they were, you know, they were a little doughier, you know, 
still a lot of top and a lot of ass, but a lot of depth of body, Not probably not as refined to their shoulders and their neck as the full flushes were. But, I mean, that was kind of the style, and it changed. Part of the effect of that was, you know, the TH and the PHA. Those, sure. those, the, the TH calves tended to have prettier hair, denser hair. Um, they tended, those animals tended to be a little more compact than the TH-free animals, especially the, you know, the full flushes and the frictions. And of course, friction was a full flush out of a, out of a Myers cow. But you started to see the style change a little bit. And those TH-free animals couldn't really compete with those TH carrier calves in terms of hair and in terms of, of just massiveness, really. And I think that the TH tended to make those animals, for their size, have a little better bone, a little more volume. They were a little sturdier animal, maybe, at least looking at them. Yep. So it was it was a lot of factors at play there. But that and was the final the analysis, really. did you make your $25,000 back? I'm sure you did. Oh, yeah, just, oh, yeah uh, we got along. Yeah, we got along. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not driving a Rolls Royce. I've got an 85 Ford pickup that if you drop something on the floor, it falls on the road underneath you. But, you know, we're doing okay. I've been to SEK's home office, and <laughs> you have a, a very good staff. That sure is interesting, though, with maybe the 90s, just top of mind was dominated by bulls like Full Flush, Payback, and Who Made Who. We said it before on the show, but whenever Brad Hook came over the crest of that hill and discovered the TH gene in his little old bull calf called Heat Seeker, uh, that changed things, and it hasn't really been the same since. That's exactly uh, right, yeah. Bone and foot and hair just got injected to him with that short horn TH gene that uh, nobody knew was there. But as time went on, we all discovered it. So that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Revolutionized the clubby deal, for sure. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, some of your descriptions go right over the top of a uh, farmer's head from Iowa named Matt Lautner. But uh, <laughs> the, what was the name of the of the process? Okay, so for basically um, – a lot of people back when this technology first came out, people were terrified of it because they were afraid that they would be making these monster animals, you know, like, you know, animals that we couldn't control. So somatic cell nuclear transfer clones are basically identical twins of, of different ages. But transgenic clones are animals that are basically a composite of two different species and and the problem with those animals are they're going to be very highly regulated, and they should be because you can create an animal that doesn't have a natural predator. So, for instance, if you were to clone, um, if you were to make a transgenic clone between great white sharks and salmon, you'd have a problem because great white sharks are voracious, you know, apex predators, and salmon can reproduce almost without limit. And if those things got out in the ocean where you couldn't control them, you couldn't control it. And so transgenic clones is something that's going to be, you know, um, guarded and, and regulated very closely. But somatic cell nuclear transfer clones actually occur in nature. That's what identical twins are. Hmm. And so, you know, when when I was... I was disappointed that the FDA gave us such a hard time bringing those clones to market originally because I felt it was pretty obvious that they were just identical twins of a different age. So nobody was regulating identical twin animals, identical twins, you know, but they, yeah. but they saw fit to regulate somatic cell nuclear transfer clones. I thought that was foolish. But looking back on it, it was one of those things where it was kind of necessary for the population, for the, for the consuming public to get comfortable with it. 
And so somatic cell nuclear transfer clones are just basically really just man-made identical twins, really. So is the technology of the last 20 years and what we have came to with IVF and, and cloning, uh, is it done progressing or what what do you think the next oh, no it's going to be I think that I think that IVF artificial insemination conventional cloning and IVF and all that stuff that's just a natural progression of better and better technologies and I think that you will see down the road I mean I'm old enough Matt that I can remember when when Lutalize was actually a really big deal because now you had a way to intervene changed the way the animals responded and when they responded. And now you've got CEDARS, you've got GNRH, you've got various kinds of drugs and hormones and various ways to, you know, to administer them. So, so what we can do now is just dramatically better than it was when I was a kid, when you had to catch heats because they didn't have little ice. Okay, now down the road what you're going to see is, um, what's a good example? Okay. Um, right now, we have no ability to tell a cow she's pregnant. She has to pick that up on her own. She has to understand that. She has to catch it herself. So when you AI a cow, the vast majority of times, if you're doing everything right, the cow's egg gets fertilized. But quite a bit of the time, probably 30% of the time or close to it, the cow doesn't get a signal from the embryo that she's pregnant. So she, can, so she secretes lutealize herself, destroys her corpus, corpus luteum, and cycles again destroying that pregnancy. If we had the ability to tell a cow she, you're pregnant, quit cycling and just raise this thing that's in you, yep. that would be a, that'd be a huge technological advance. It would make things much, much, much more efficient. We don't have the ability to do that, but somebody's working on trying to figure out what that signal is that that embryo sends to that cow. And if we can replicate that, then like for instance, embryo transfer will become enormously efficient because you'll have virtually 100% conception. When I put an embryo in a cow during ET work, I know if she's pregnant when she walks out of the damn chute. But half the time she loses that pregnancy or close to half the time. Follow me? So those kind of technologies are going to be incredibly useful when we develop them. And people are working on it, and it'll happen too. Seems like the nat a natural progression that uh, technology will get us there. Yeah, it'll get better if we pay attention, yeah. So is there any uh, funny or entertaining or lighthearted stories from your career that you could uh, tell before we sign <laughs> off here tonight? Probably, probably they're too R-rated, plus the people I tell them on would get mad, so I guess not. You know, one of those kind of deals. If you'd have asked uh, me to think about that, I could have come up with something. Trust me, I really could have, but I better not. So a uh, little shout-out for your company. Um, what is your website address? It's sekgenetics.com. If I was going to encourage people to look into things that are underused right now, it would be things like, and, and, this is, and this is kind of simple stuff that's been around for a while, but stuff like blood pregnancy tests, BVD tests, testing for Neospora, which is a parasite which causes a lot of abortions. People aren't familiar with it or comfortable with it. But trust me, if you've got 100 cows in, your, in this part of the country and you haven't tested them for Neospora, you're losing pregnancies because of that. It's very, very common, a really big problem, and people don't pay attention to it. We yeah. see it all the time. Tom yeah. Cooper's phone number is 620-423-9584, located in Galesburg, Kansas, right near the uh, Missouri and Oklahoma border, right down there. Yeah. In the south corner. Yep, not too far away. But this is really kind of fun and pleasant. It really is. I, I appreciate it. Sounds good, Don. We'll be in touch. I'll uh, send you this preview in the morning, okay? Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.